Welcome to this week's episode of the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast. I'm really excited because I've always liked to take the opportunity to get somebody on the show that can talk about their experiences and their journey with axial spondyloarthritis. A few weeks ago, I saw some posts done on the Living with Ankylosing Spondylitis board on Facebook. They were from a gentleman who I've read his other posts as well. His name is Andrew Boss. And Andrew had a really detailed, in-depth knowledge of uh, food, nutrition, and some things that have helped with him. And so, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your journey with axial spondyloarthritis, your diagnosis. How did you come to find out what you were dealing with? Yeah, so my case, uh, like I'm sure most of the members, is it's complicated. It it started out, I was actually getting peripheral arthritis in the fingers and the toes that, that I couldn't really explain. And, oh, gosh, this was mostly back in 2018, going into the fall and winter. So, of course, I was kind of wondering what was going on. I, I was a musician, and I my key instrument was piano, but... I've also played for 20 years, so it didn't really seem to connect to that. Well, I went to the doctor. They referred me to a rheumatologist. They tested me positive for the HLA-B27 well. Following that diagnosis, he, he also looked for any kind of inflammation in the sacroiliac joints, uh, which I did not have any, and there actually might be an explanation as to why that I'll, I can get into later. But no inflammation in the sacroiliac joints, but and CRP was actually below normal, like 0.3 or something like that. So all they are sort of standard inflammatory markers, which don't necessarily always indicate what's going on, but at least are a basis for your general inflammatory responses. Nothing really came back, but the HLA-27, B27 L stood out to him. So he put me on a year of methotrexate and the methyl, I didn't know those results in the month. It was significantly lower amount of inflammation. So as I was taking this for the next year, my first starting to wonder, well, if this, I, I'm always curious about what, what you know, ca uh, cause and effect and react and why I feel the way I do after taking something or after doing something different. So I was, I kind of dug into a little bit about what methotrexate is and what it does. One of the things it is is an antifolate uh, drug, so that's why people often supplement with folic acid. But more importantly, it, it suppresses B lymphocyte and T lymphocyte activity. So as many of these DMARs do. So uh, I was just kind of starting to wonder, well, how can I mimic that? Is there a way to mimic that? Most pharmaceutical drugs are originally from plants to some degree. So maybe there is a way for me to manage this without any pharmaceutical intervention. I started thinking about that more and I delve into certain things in, in the research. And when I say research, I mean, I mean the nitty gritty, the biochemical uh, activity, the, some of the, path, the most well-accepted theories behind SPA pathogenesis, which in the center of that all is something called the IL-23 TH17 axis. Having said all that, I, I, I delved into the research and I came across a couple of things that I decided to give it a try since then. I mean, what I tell people is I feel like I did when I was taking the medications, but I'm not taking the medication. That's a quick summary of everything up since then to this point. I should probably also note that I stopped taking it the methotrexate a year after I, I started. So it started in like, I don't know, oh, September, October. I stopped, I tapered out in December. Actually, I tapered out without my doctor's approval. That's a different story, but 
I tapered off and then started trying these things. So you you haven't really been dealing with this all that long. 2018 is not a long time, but you've certainly no. gone in and, and done education far beyond what many of us that have been dealing with this for 40 years have done. That really doesn't mean, for everybody listening, that doesn't mean stop your meds. You know, right, right, this right. is... Everyone some, is different, so yeah. Right, I want to get that across that, well, this might be helping Andrew at this point. If you're thinking about things, look at everything that he's read and then take it and talk to your doctor. Do not just stop yeah. your meds and say, I'm going to start taking fish oil supplements and run. You know, <laughs> right. I, I want I mean, to be very clear about that. It's a lot more complicated than that for one thing. And, and yeah, of course, uh, you shouldn't really take anything that, or you shouldn't really do anything without consult with your doctor. That, that goes without saying. And, you know, taking that a little bit further, I caught this really early. And to some extent, I don't even fully know what this is. All I know, the doctor diagnosed me with reactive arthritis, which is one of those things that are implicated in sort of this uh, the spectrum of TH17-mediated autoinflammatory diseases actually includes irritable bowel syndrome, which is actually why you see a lot of correlation with irritable IBS and arthropathies. And you'll see some similarities with psoriasis um, and, and psoriatic arthritis. So they all sort of fall into general categorization. And they, most of them seem to be mediated by TH17. But having said all that, it, it, I don't really know what exactly it is, except for the fact that it would appear that mine is probably mediated within a similar mechanism that, that mediates ankylosing spondylitis. In fact, he kind of used the, the rheumatologist I used to see, he kind of used the words interchangeably to some extent, just because of the, primarily because of the presence of HLAB27. Hmm, interesting. I want to jump back to a post that you made in, oh, late May, and it was about nutrition. And you went fairly yeah. in depth where people were talking about, you know, you hear these, should I do keto? Should I do carnivore? Should I do water yeah. fast? Should I go all plants? Yeah. I'll be a vegan, I'll, you know, whatever right. the items are. What was a little bit that you found out about nutrition? Again, for listeners, this is nutrition that affected Andrew. It doesn't mean that the same thing will affect you in the same way. So you really have to, again, work to find out that's, probably the most maddening thing about AS is that we all have the same thing, but we react differently to everything. Further expand on that, the uh, the aforementioned pathway, the TH17 IL-23, is not the only pathway that's being discussed, of course. You also have the misfolding theory, which uh, AHLAB27 has been the most explicitly studied on, on that theory. You also have, I've been looking into recently, the, the mast cell activation issues, which uh, one of the primarily granule, uh, mast cells are granule sites, so it'll release these granules that have very high inflammatory cytokines, and one of them is IL-17. So there's a lot more going on underneath the picture. But to answer your question, what I found, we like to try and make this an absolute picture where you should do this diet because of this, or you shouldn't do that. And of course, it's never as clear as you want it to be. The sort of absolutism, of course, comes from anecdotal experience. But what I have found in general is that when I, I, I did talk a little bit about ketogenic and, and carnivore and, and, the re, and the mechanism behind why those diets are very effective, although I, I'm not a fan of them for different reasons, but the reason why they're effective is because they induce a state of ketosis to a very, very mild extent. And, and the, the benefits of ketosis have been, have been well recorded and, and they actually have quite a bit of clinical data on folks who use the ketogenic diet uh, for 
for type 2 diabetes, there's quite a bit of PubMed research for that, as well as uh, having seizures. I forget the name of that. The, the name is escaping me right now. But apparently, there's quite a bit of research about about that diet for those particular events. And it has to, partly to do with the state of ketosis it produces. So taking the notion of ketosis a step further, it's one of those otherwise dormant states that we usually don't really fully understand or appreciate partially because of how we are always, you know, for example, if you go to a grocery store, you're going to come across aisles and aisles of food. You don't have to worry about any notion of, of not having enough food. That's a phenomenon that has been with us only for the past hundred years or so, where we can always go to the grocery store and find what we need. And it sort of feeds into this notion that a fed state is a necessary state. And I actually have challenged that theory because I, I don't know how true it is and I'll, I'll, I'm going to say this carefully because obviously I'm not saying you should starve yourself to death, but uh, we'll get into what I'm talking about here. What I mean by that is that prior to this notion of always having something to eat, we ha we've had millennia of famines and, and we've had to adapt to that in some way. And we've learned to adapt to it. And for those who you know, and I'm going to say this kind of point blank rough for those of, for those people who didn't die, where they not only survive but their cells gain resilience. It's part of the reason why we evolve. So that's sort of the cut and dry Darwinism approach to it. But from a health perspective, this is also useful because this kind of goes into the notion of well, how can we increase the resilience of our cells in a way that's safe and potentially efficacious. And by resilience, I'm, there are a lot of things that happen when I speak about resilience. And it has to do with ketosis, but it's on a more generic term, it has to do with the fasting state. And there are two states that we have, the fed state, which is, as you can imagine, the state we're in after eating. And then we have the fasted state, which is the state we begin to have once our glycogen storage in our liver is, is too low. And they, that prompts a couple of different cascades and rate-limiting reactions that begin the process of gluconeogenesis and ketogenesis. And what keto and carnivore do is, well, they don't eat less. They do it in a way where they severely restrict their carbohydrate. And the, carbo the notion of carbohydrate restriction, it's a good hat trick for sure, because what that does is it basically tricks your body into believing that it's starving. So the glycogen supply gets low, the liver begins producing glucose for the certain cells that cannot metabolize ketones, including the brain cells and the blood cells. And that happens on a very low-grade notion in these diets like ketogenic, which allow some of the benefits of ketosis to begin taking place and some of the things you see in an otherwise fastest state, such as mTOR inhibition, the activation of, of NAD-dependent protein, the acetylases, or for, in short, their sirtuin family, uh, which have been associated with both longevity and improved health. They actually affect some of the epigenome, and, and they are very good at turning off certain transcription factors that may may make us more prone to inflammation. So it's a, it's a science. It, it, it's all there. And the Nobel Prize and one of the scientists who discovered autophagy got a Nobel Prize in peace or something like that. It, it, so it's pretty, it, it's, or science, pardon me. It, so it's pretty significant findings. And that's sort of what these diets are kind of tapping into. 
my hesitation, of course, with those diets is that in order to restrict your carbs to a put to a, a point where it becomes effective and where you're actually in ketogenesis, it, it also in, it involves you consume a very high amount of animal protein. And, and, and most commonly, you see a lot of tarant animal protein consumed in these diets, which may offset some omega-6 to 3 ratios and, and antioxidant ratios that would otherwise be used to keep the body in a otherwise healthy state. So, and there's a couple other things that I have concerns for those. And it's not to say that people can't do that and be fine with it. And, you know, there are some blur, always blurry lines because, you know, you take people like the Inuit who survived off of, they pretty much ate walrus meat, which is very high in omega-3 fatty acids. So that may have helped offset any inflammatory cascades that would otherwise take place if you're eating a diet too high in saturated fat and omega-6 fatty acids, which interestingly both seem to have some of a, of a synergistic role in promoting some of the age-mediated diseases. That, that we see a lot. So well, that was my main hesitation with those diets. And this, the reason why I don't use that for my own protocol, I don't have diabetes, type 1 particularly. And for the things I do, such as water fasting, it's not really recommended for people with organ issues, with type 1 diabetes, uh, thyroid kidney issues. You have to be more careful with when you're exploring approaches like water fasting. And now we're going to to segue a little bit into the notion of fasting and it, it'll show in my post that there I'll, I'll divide the different types of fasting you have intermittent fasting which is very popular now it's actually much more user-friendly although the efficacy of it is limited because your fasting window is at most uh, 18 to 20 hours whereas in if you're exploring if you're doing water fasting that your your time window is not in hours but sometimes days and uh, up to you know, if you're doing it on your own, up to five days. Otherwise, if you're doing it longer than that, I recommend getting supervised at a fasting facility where people have water fasted for two to three weeks. Um, wow. Depending on the severity of what, what they have and what they're trying to do and whether or not, most importantly, whether or not they're candidates, which these fasting facilities will actually go to great lengths to ensure their candidacy with blood panels and, and whatnot. And some of these facilities uh, have a nurse on site and they will continue with the blood panels, and at the very least, you'll get a heart rate and uh, maybe a ketone test. So, you mentioned something that I think is so important for all. Now, this really is more applicable to Western diets. It's the notion of reducing the refined sugars, the refined foods, the fried foods. Just taking those out of your diet, even if you don't do other things, taking those out, ramping up vegetables, fatty fish that can have a positive effect on, I would think, on what you're doing. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And in fact, some of the ben a lot of the benefits people see in some of these ketogenic diets are actually just them removing some of these refined sugars and increasing their vegetable intakes and, or, and, and some of the mild forms of ketogenic diets. And just, you know, removing some of the crud that is otherwise uh, inevitable. And, and as you so eloquently put it, it in, in my case... In this country where I live, in the, in the United States, it's it's kind of a, I mean, you can't go anywhere without finding refined sugar in, in the, as an ingredient, even bread, which I don't otherwise recommend, but even bread has refined, uh, has an actual added ingredient of refined sugar, which, so it's, it's hard to find, a, it's, it's hard to find anything on the shelf that doesn't already have sugar in it. 
try walking through a grocery store and look for something that doesn't either say, as you put, refined sugar or high fructose corn syrup as one of the top two or three ingredients. Or even aspartame. A lot of people who are, are trying to turn to diet, uh, diet Cokes up, all those diet sodas are, are sucralose as well as a potential issue in the form of Splenda, which is why alternatives like Stevia have become more common, although that though it has its own pitfalls here and there. Depend, for example, there, it hasn't been studied enough in, for women who are pregnant. Uh, it's actually not recommended to take Stevia, but Otherwise, it's a it's a healthy. If you don't want to get that deep and you're just trying to find a place to start, best place to start is ask yourself the question: Are you how how much time are you spending in the produce section? And because if if you're not spending most of your time in the produce section, then that could be one of the issues. Because that I can assure you, for one thing, produce doesn't have added sugar. <laughs> but but of course, also that you're getting fresh food. You're fresh fruits and vegetables that you are you are making your own food and you have control of what ingredients that you're using and you know that's a major and i i sometimes don't really acknowledge that because it seems so simplistic to me but truth of the matter is that there's value to that that um i don't always acknowledge because i'm so used to doing it it's just like well if i didn't if there weren't a produce section of store i'd be screwed but right it's possible not everybody thinks that way You've seen a lot of the studies that have been done. When you go into a grocery store, you're pretty much safe to skip all the aisles and just do a, <laughs> um, when you look at a grocery store, the outer ring, so to speak, is dairy, meat, and vegetables. Everything else in the centers, for the most part, is some type of refined foods. And it's a form of, yeah, it's, it's a, most of it's processed. And if you're going to look around at those aisles, just be sure, sure you read the ingredients. The ingredients really matter more so than what's on the nutrition facts. Scroll down below the nutrition facts, read the ingredients, and anything that appears to be even so much as has the word enriched or non-bleached. These are all indications of even wheat flour is not really what it sounds like. Wheat flour is often white flour that has been enriched with caramel color. So they find ways to trick you into thinking that you're having something healthier than it really is. And that's part of the problem is, is these companies, of course, don't want you to know that there's 20 grams of extra sugar in that cranberry juice because cranberries are really sour fruits. So they, they want to try and hide that somehow. So tell me a little bit about um, one of the big things, again, as you discussed in this, one of the big things when you look at ketosis or carnivore diet is the level of meat consumption that is generally required to, you know, make these work. Is there, we know fish high in fat, fatty omega-3s is good. Eat that within reason. You know, it's not something you want to have every day. All of this is something you want to do within reason. Are there better meat proteins than others? I, I really don't know. Well, that answer is partially subjective, but if you're asking me, uh, I, I kind of divide it between tarin and sea. Um, that's really the easiest way. And uh, I understand in tarin, there are further subcategories, whether or not it's conventional or grass-fed. I, I know those are big topics of discussion in the paleo realm. But when it comes down to it, there are two, three really major concerns I have with a diet that has little excess of, of that kind of meat. And it's not necessarily that it doesn't work because the, the fact of the matter is beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is one of the main functioning ketones is very anti-inflammatory. And some of the cascades that take place 
uh, in a fasted state or when your body is being tricked into thinking it's a fasted state also suppress inflammation. That's why some people who do these diets do have success with it. But of course, the caveat is you got to stay in ketosis. So once you get out of that and you're back in your glucose state, you're now left with the unbalanced amount of omega-6s that are always going to be in higher amounts than omega-3 in, in any kind of land protein. You're also going to be dealt with the low antioxidant supply, and you're also going to deal with the saturated fat, which does there's, there is some correlation. And we obviously, we don't know exactly what the correlation is. It's still a little bit elusive, but there is correlation between the, there's some kind of crosstalk when it comes to the shift in microbiome and the elevated amount of plasma lipopolysaccharide in, in, in terms of animal protein consumption, which are, when you have those two factors, they, they can be potentially atherogenic. So that's why I'm a little bit hesitant when it comes to some of those diets, because while it helps in one way, it, it also might cause problems in the long term in a different way, where, for example, I mentioned about the omega-6. You're not going to find any kind of lamb protein uh, that I know of that's not going to have a ratio better than three to one, three omega-6s to one omega-3. And although that's not, that's not a bad ratio, the best ratio for healthy individuals is one to one. And if you are already health compromised, you want actually you want a ratio where you're having more omega-3 than omega-6. And so if you're consuming a bunch of this meat, and meat is our richest source of omega fatty acids, particularly omega-6 fatty acids, you're now kind of chain you're somewhat tilting the the seesaw to favor omega-6s. And and the next little caveat here are the desaturase enzymes and the elongase enzymes already kind of have a preference toward omega-6 and based off of the way it's based off of the, uh, its chemical properties. So it's really important to keep that in mind when you're considering some of these diets higher in animal protein and because now you're, you may actually upset the, whereas you may get some anti-inflammatory benefits from the ketogenesis notion, you may also be offsetting that to a degree as your omega-6 begins to accumulate more. Now, and the three to one ratio is literally the best example. And you're talking about the best grass fed meat you can find. Otherwise, the conventional meat, you're anywhere between 10 to one to 20 to one in terms of the omega six to three ratio. So now if you take fish, now fish has its own concerns, the methylmercury content, although that content is very, very low in fatty fish, uh, particularly the wild caught Alaskan salmon, the some of the Norwegian varieties, North Atlantic mackerel, not to be confused with king mackerel, which which actually does have a lot of mercury. North Atlantic mackerel, uh, anchovies, cod, pollock. These are lower in the mercury levels, and they're also fatty and very, very rich sources of omega-3, with ranges anywhere between 1 to 3 to 1 to 10, and which, as you probably caught, is literally the inverse of omega-6 to 3 ratio, comparing that with terran meat. So it's an important thing to understand that if you are, and it's actually why the Mediterranean diet has been very meticulously studied in clinical trials, and, and a lot of the ones I come across, even when compared to veganism, uh, they find that the Mediterranean diet is superior. Alongside that very heavy plant-based ingestion, you're also including the fatty fish to really optimize some of those omega-3 the omega-6 to 3 ratio. So 
that is that was that's my main concern with meat. And of course, now if we start talking about saturated fatty acids, there is again it's elusive, but some papers have published a correlation with uh, saturated fatty acid and toll-like receptor four, which is usually that that it's usually expressed in the presence of lipopolysaccharide. But there have been theories saying that saturated fat can have a similar effect, but those theories are not very solid. It's more likely there might be a indirect effect. Maybe the notion of having too much uh, tarin protein alters the expression of the microbiome, where you act. And, and this has been shown, uh, particularly it's been most studied with red meat due to the trimethylamine oxygen. Or they've shown that the excess consumption can alter the, the microbiome state to produce more ammonia and amine-producing bacteria. And so that includes things like histamine, but also includes tri trimethylamine oxide, which is synthesized from L-carnitin, which is very high in partially like the red meat, which is why it's been studied. But an interesting aside to that is you can't actually synthesize L-carnitin if you don't uh, if, if that bacteria that produces it is present, which is why I footnoted that it changes the microbiome first to produce more of those bacteria that degrade that particular L-carnitin. So that's also important too. And microbiome health is, is a whole topic of its own and optimizing the right ratio can actually lower any kind of negative effects that come with it. So let's say if I wanted a cheat one week and I wanted just to, you know, get a, che uh, a hamburger, a cheeseburger or something, after, you know, days and days and days of my normal protocol where I'm having mostly salads and whatnot, well, the impact that my cheat would have may be less severe just because of, well, maybe some of that L-carnitin is not getting, it's not getting synthesized because there's not enough bacteria that degrade it. So anyway, uh, there's, there's a lot more to be said about microbiome health than probably, than we probably have time for, but the diversity of the microbiome is essential. And we studies have shown that altered microbiome diversity is an issue with the vast majority of age-mediated diseases. And we do see an alteration of microbiome diversity depending on what your diet is. The most studied have been the Mediterranean diet, which have, as I mentioned, shown the best microbiome diversity. And on the other end of that spectrum is you have the high-fat slash high-sugar diet, which seem to have also altered the microbiome diversity, but in the wrong way. So the curious thing about some of those studies is they don't always distinguish high fat from high sugar. And that's where people who really are into the carnivore and keto diets will say, well, they should have, you know, done them differently. And to their credit, there might they might be right. It could be more of the sugar than it is the 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 high fat. But I would argue that depending on the other components uh, that come with saturated fat and you know if how high the omega-6 ratio is, it, it could also be a component to altering the microbiome diversity. And furthermore, an interesting little aside here, and the reason why I am so headstrong about retaining omega-6 and 3 balances, aside from the fact that it pretty much controls, uh, regulates everything, or at least it corresponds to pretty much everything. What's really interesting is how it interacts with a cell that is under endoplasmic particular stress caused by NF-kappa B activation, which is 
associated with the act, with the expression of toll-like receptor number four, as I mentioned earlier, which has been shown to have some correlation with whether it's saturated fatty acids or the change in microbiome or the altered expression of gram-negative lipopolysaccharide. But with the curious thing about omega-3 in its bioactive form, the, the cosahexaonic acid, or DHA for short, the, the DHA actually can actually interact with the cell through its own receptor, I believe it's called GPR120. And it actually, it inhibits the inflammatory response created from the expression of telic receptor 4. So what you're, what basically what, what that means is the omega-3 fatty acids is actually reversing the inflammatory effect of the lipopolysaccharide or whatever antigen is expressing telic receptor 4. So just a little example of, of why I really find the topic of omega-6 to 3 balance important, aside from other things, of course, that we haven't really touched on quite yet, like antioxidants. Well, and that's why I want to read this. You wrote this, and I thought this was really a good short paragraph that I think will kind of tie some of that together, but lead us into, I want to talk about water fasting. And you wrote, this is why I recommend folks who do not have liver, kidney, thyroid, or pancreatic dysfunction to water fast as their manner of optimizing ketone levels while maintaining a whole food plant-based diet, high amounts of veggies, but be cautious with nightshades, moderate amounts of fruits, mostly berries, moderate amount of fat, avocados, walnuts, etc., mild amount of blue-slash-purple starches and or wheat-free and soaked ancient grains, and everything else sparingly, including animal sources, preferably fish or fermented homemade dairy products like uh, is it pronounced kefir? Uh, uh, the, you can pronounce it that way. Some people pronounce it kefir. Snobs like me will pronounce it as kefir. So Kefir, okay. As well as all refined sugars and pressed oils. I know pressed oils are real bad for you. And you get the yeah. best of both worlds this way. Ketones, high antioxidants, high N3, and optimized systemic function. And then you pair that with intermittent fasting. Yes, and, and that really is, in my opinion, the best of both worlds. It's taking two different notions and kind of synergizing them together. You're getting the ketosis, and you're also getting the high antioxidants and the uh, high omega-3 intake. And I'm just imagining to myself, would there be anything in that paragraph that I would amend? But I, I don't think so. I mean, there are obviously tons of footnotes that come with all of those bullet points, you know, right. starches, for example. And I know there's been a lot of debate about this recently. Starches are interesting because there are good, just like carbohydrates, there are good ones and there are bad ones. And if you think about the kind of starches in the, in, in the United States, you have Idaho potatoes, which is, you know, basically toilet paper with some nutrients in it. And you also have, you know, this genetically modified corn, mostly yellow corn. And I mean, white rice is technically a starch. White rice is, of course, the brown rice without the husk, uh, which you're taking away some of the most important benefits away when you're removing the husk. And then just other other things like that, like uh, how, how are you having your starches? Are you having them hot or cold? Well, it actually makes a difference because uh, if you're having cold brown rice or cold purple Japanese yams, that's going to have a different effect on your body than heated because of a process called retrogradation, where the starches, when exposed to a lot of heat, break down into glucose. But if you let it sit overnight and refrigerate, that a process of retrogradation will actually convert that back into resistant starch type 3. As you know, and probably many of the four members know, uh, resistant starches do not get degraded 
in the small intestine, they get degraded in the duodenum and the large intestine where the bacteria break it down into its short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which are very beneficial for endothelial cell reparation and, and mucus generation. They, they keep, they protect the intestinal lining from perforation, which is uh, perforation you can think of uh, leaky gut, for example, is a non-clinical term, but would be used to describe permeation or perforation of the intestine. Well, thank you for listening to this first part of what I decided to make into a two-part episode. Andrew's information is so detailed that I decided to break it down into two pieces because it really, we just seemed like we scratched the surface and we had an hour and a half of recorded interview. So enjoy this. Look for part two coming out next week. We'll talk more about some fasting and some other things that are very, what I think, important to axial spondyloarthritis. Take care and have a wonderful week.